And we welcome you to the Tuesday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I am delighted to, well, I typically say I'm delighted to be sitting across the table from my Carthage colleague, Dr. Art Sear. Now we're sitting across from one another uh, via the, the platform Zoom. So he in his home, I in my home, uh, are speaking in virtual format today, and that's been, of course, the case with basically every single morning show interview over the last uh, month or so. Uh, but I'm glad that we can catch up with Dr. Sear and uh, have him uh, offer his thoughts and analysis on a wide variety of uh, of events and issues, including, of course, COVID-19, but some other things as well that uh, tend to be crowded out of the headlines, certainly, uh, during this time of crisis. Uh, Dr. Sear is the Claussen Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage, director of the Claussen Center, author of After the Cold War. Uh, his column appears in newspapers around the country and in other countries as well. And uh, we're uh, very grateful to him for making time in his schedule to be part of the morning show uh, each and every month. And Professor Sear, we welcome you back to the program. Well, thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be with you, virtually, literally, anyway. <laughs> I wonder... Antidote, good antidote to going stir-crazy. I appreciate, I appreciate you, getting in, you getting in touch about this. Your right. is always welcome. Uh, maybe we could just uh, start with the personal, if you don't mind, and it uh, can lead into a very personal story that you told in one of your most recent columns about your, your own father. And uh, something he experienced during the Great Depression. But ahead of that, but ahead of that, uh, I'd be curious just to know what this experience of COVID-19 has been been like for you thus far, I suppose, both professionally and personally in terms of having to shift your, your, your functioning at Carthage into this online format and, of course, also dealing with the whole social distancing thing as, as most of us are. Uh, what's this uh, been like for you over the last few weeks? Well, our students, of course, are a big asset, and uh, colleagues and others, of course, but students are so flexible and so adoptable at a young age. There are lots of challenges to being young, but there are advantages as well, and it's been a good <laughs> reminder of how tech-savvy they tend to be and how adoptable they tend to be and how essentially positive in terms of um, social outlooks young people, most young people are. And we're a very positive community at the college, of course, traditionally, and um, I, I, I feel anyway that, that that dimension is visible. Uh, it is, uh, and my job involves external representation of the college. As you know, that's a lot of what Tom Clausen had in mind when he and his wife were kind enough to endow the chair that I currently have and um, other things as well at the college. And so I've had to adjust and adopt, but that's true of a lot of people. An awful lot of business and professional life is human interchange. But I'm, uh, um, becoming much more tech-savvy myself, following the lead of our students. I am getting more writing done, and um, uh, the list is growing of uh, business calls, and you know, especially fundraising contacts I should be making, but, but I plug away. <laughs> Speaking of, of being flexible and adapting and so on, that has a little bit to do with the really poignant story that you shared in a recent column about your father, uh, which takes us all the way back to the Great Depression. Uh, um, at the risk of asking you to paraphrase an entire story, I, I really uh, hope that you won't mind sharing at least uh, a lot of it with, with our listeners. I, 
I, I found it to be uh, really moving and also thought provoking. <laughs> so share with our listeners whatever you like. Yeah, well, it's um, well. Thank you. It's the weekly column in um, the Kenosha News, and it's available um, online through various outlets, mainly um, Gannett, which recently bought out Gatehouse, which bought out Scripps Howard, uh, Howard Brown, the longtime publisher of the Kenosha News, quite a long while ago, was able to break the ice with Scripps Howard, and I've been writing a weekly column ever since, hmm. and. Uh, but I kind of feel like the last man standing sometimes. But, uh, last person standing, I beg your pardon. But um, it's been a very good way to create visibility for the college, which I'm supposed to be doing. And uh, Mr. Clausen was particularly, he was a very good executive. He didn't try to tell us what to do. Uh, but he was very good at keeping an eye on things. And he, uh, he would let you know when he didn't think things were going so well. He was extremely enthusiastic about um, newspaper opinion columns and now online uh, commentaries because he said it was indirect marketing. Um, if you're if you're a banker, there are a lot of people who are hostile to bankers who got to find a way in the door separate from banking. And he said uh, he really liked the idea that there would be what he considered a good column and then a, a byline at the bottom that mentioned our college. So inspired by that partly. Um, Plus, I, I find it satisfying to write and uh, especially publish when possible. Yeah. I've pursued it ever since. To actually answer your question, uh, my parents were from Chicago, um, who then migrated much late after this story, much later on to the West Coast, like a lot of people, uh, because jobs were more available during the Great Depression. The uh, story that you're referring to, my dad was a very young working man in the early 1930s and he literally was slowly but surely starving to death um, he told me that there would be dozens sometimes hundreds of uh, men who would show up at a dock or a warehouse or a freight yard or some other um, storage and shipping facility in Chicago in a terrible time in the early 30s and the foreman would come out on the dock or the deck and say uh, something like, listen up, you men, I've got 10 jobs available today. How many of you will take these jobs for a dollar? Raise your hand. And then he, as often as not, he would say something like, if your hand is not in the air, you have a minute, two minutes to leave the premises. Otherwise, you will be hurt. I've got 10 jobs today. How many of you men will take them for 75 cents a day? And uh, even when my dad could get a job for 50 or 30 cents a day, it just would not sustain human life. You could uh, go up on the Gold Coast or the North Shore and knock on back doors and get food. But in that time, a man did not take charity. Uh, you weren't a man if you were dependent on others. Hmm. I say it with emphasis because we have a rather different outlook on the world today. Um, he didn't want to impose on uh, his family, and uh, so he hit the road. Even when even when he could get a job, it was he wasn't able to get enough food to sustain himself, and food was in very short supply among working people back then. So he literally hopped on a freight train and rode the rails down to Texas a tremendous oil exporter today that was the case in the 30s as well in between we had some problems with an organization called OPEC and 
from about 1960 until relatively recently where we're, we were a net oil importer. But we were a world supplier back then. And in fact, you could, uh, you could get work in the oil fields. Like most kids, I tended to tune out when my parents told me a lot of the time. But that story was so gripping, I remember it clearly. And I actually asked questions about it. So that's the story. That had a happy ending. He was able to uh, uh, get work. Uh, the, the wages were extremely high. It was also extremely difficult work and to some extent dangerous. The, the automation and mechanization that today characterizes uh, petroleum extraction and refining and a lot of other things. But extraction especially was literally manual labor. Uh, after a few years, he was able to put together a substantial savings and head back to Chicago. So, uh, I'm curious to know, I mean, I, I know from reading the end of the column, but I think it's important for you to say to our listeners why you think that story uh, was worth sharing with your, your listeners. I mean, the way in which it is applicable uh, to today, the, the lesson that we can take from it. Uh, he joined the Texas Army National Guard. Uh, Texas like the rest of the South, even more than the rest of the South, in my limited experience in some ways, is um, a very pro-military culture. Um, it, was, it was a good thing to do in terms of the respect of your peers. It was also a center of social activity among young people. Uh, again, a very different world from the way most of us live today. And uh, his social life improved. Um, he told the story of, uh, they were visited by two German army officers from the new Nazi Reich in Germany. Um, this was very early on, who in well-organized fashion, the uh, people from that regime almost immediately started systematically collecting information from other industrial nations uh, with a particular interest in the United States, which uh, had a strange fascination for the Germans at that time, starting with Adolf Hitler. Anyway, my dad, uh, officers didn't mix with enlisted men, especially in that part, from that part of Europe, but even across a dusty drill field, he could tell just how disdainful and contemptuous these two German officers were of the Americans who were drilling. Uh, my father was part of the greatest generation who got us through that ordeal. There's a very good chance that neither one of those German officers survived the uh, apocalypse that descended um, after Germany started the war in Europe. The, uh, um, it got me thinking throughout Europe at that time, not only in Germany, but uh, throughout the continent and in Britain, people waited for the burgomeister, the prefect, the provost, the town councillor to tell them what to do. You were part of an economic category, a social group, and you waited basically to be told what to do. Um, if you are an average person. In this country from the beginning, it really has been quite different. And uh, his story struck me as quite educational and indeed heroic you know, from the time I was a child. But also it symbolized something very distinctive about this country. We have lots of natural resources, but we also have an individualistic tradition that lends itself to innovation and creativity and there are some important reasons why we won World War II, a war we could have lost. It was by no means just material resources. Innovation and imagination 
from the top to the soldier on the, on the ground carrying a weapon. That was really important. The more I learn about that terrible war, the more impressed I am by just how important that lesson is. Hmm. So, so don't, don't despair in the middle of the uh, current public health problem. We can work our way through these things, and we do. For those of you just joining us, uh, my guest today is Dr. Art Sear from the Claussen Center at Carthage College, uh, paying his monthly visit to the program. And uh, we're going to be exploring quite a, a number of, of, of different uh, issues. Uh, Dr. Sear, one of the things that is, of course, quite extraordinary about what we are experiencing right now is that this is being felt in nearly every corner of the globe, not not quite, but it's really hard to think of another situation that is is quite as pervasive as as this one is in terms of touching so many nations and so many people and uh i wonder how that makes this complicated first of all in terms of just following and understanding and analyzing but also in terms of of the crafting of solutions and and uh what 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 lessons do we learn from whom? Uh, where are the cautionary tales in terms of things not done well? I mean, this seems like uh, a, a, a complicated uh, story issue uh, in part because of its vast scope. What are you making of all of this? Well, it's not that that's a very good question, and there's no easy answer. And uh, uh, since I tend to talk at length, obviously, I think it's important not, not to do so in this case. There's nothing new about international public health problems. We're all much more aware of the 1918 pande- pandemic, which was far more lethal than what we're facing currently. Uh, the world also had um, significant flu epidemics in uh, 57, uh, 58, and 1968. Um, there were vaccines in those days. Also, we did not have a 24-7 news cycle, and maybe, again, maybe we were a little different. Um, but those uh, fairly recent uh, pandemics, which I do recall to a degree, uh, didn't generate quite the public um, reaction that this one has. Things do happen more rapidly. We have a 24-7 news cycle that can easily generate alarm and does, and that's part of their um, focus nowadays on profits. It's, it really is a profit-making business across the board, not an information service, another big change. Uh, but things do move more rapidly, and it is the downside of globalization in the sense that these things are more likely than they used to be, given the tremendous am- amount and volume of international human and economic traffic. Hmm. So that's not a short answer. I hope it's a clear answer. Yeah. And, uh, not, a, not as long as some, some of my uh, long-winded <laughs> commentaries. Maybe we could focus for a second on the economic dimensions of this. Uh, the fact that what we seem to be experiencing right now, of course, is, is severe damage to our own economy and severe damage is being sustained by other economies as well all around the world. And the fact that we now are part of this global economy and you talk about it often about the the uh, the free flow of wealth and goods and so on uh, that that is you know in good times uh, a very positive thing and uh, what keeps it as a, a sustaining healthy system uh, it seems like this is a moment in which damage 
can also be, in a sense, transmitted. I mean, that when other major economies are hurting and ours is hurting, we're all hurting together. Um, do you, I mean, is it an advantage or a disadvantage in this moment that we are part of this global economy uh, and that uh, we are affected by what happens in other places, particularly in a moment like this where something bad is happening in so many places? I think it's an advantage. In fact, I know it is. The average person in this country is vastly more well-off than was the case in 1918, uh, even in 1957, 58, 1968. Um, certainly in the, compared to the 1930s, which we were talking about at the beginning, thanks for asking and thanks for reading that column, which was more personal than I usually get. Um, the the upside is really great, and it's even more dramatic for the rest of the world. Somewhere between three and 400 million people in China, that's a lot of people, in the last several decades have moved out of peasant poverty into something like what an American would consider an, a fairly acceptable standard of living. So the growth in wealth is tremendous. The, the question, though, is, uh, I mean, this was certainly true six months ago. That that as a whole, are you know, most people are better off in a sense. But in a time like this, where we are suffering such drastic hurt of our economy, as is China, as our other you know major powers, um, is the fact that we are part of a global economy does that help us recover? Or does it make it more difficult because everybody's hurting um, and that the hurt is transmitted in the same way that wealth is transmitted? I think the best answer is you and I and everyone else should pay close attention to the facts and try as much as possible to avoid speculation. I, I'm pretty sure that we're going to go into a recession. Um, let's see what happens. We're not there yet. It's important not to speculate about what's likely or is or is happening until we have the facts. Now, a lot of people are unemployed and the federal government also, also in great contrast to the 1930s is uh, with remarkable speed produced a tremendous amount of financial aid and related um, supports for the population at large. The markets are have not collapsed the stock market has gone down it has not collapsed why is that i don't know no one else does either um, but i do think that the anxiety that you're communicating and we generally feel uh can very easily translate into fear and speculation about the future we don't know exactly what's going to happen i tend to be an optimist uh, because the tremendous production, productive capacity of the global economy. But I, 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 I don't want to offend you, Greg, but um, I do want to emphasize this point to our listeners and, and to you. As much as possible, pay attention to the facts and try to tune out all the speculation in the media. It is said, people are saying, rumor has it, I heard it on the grapevine, you know, it can become a way of life and has for vast numbers of people, thanks to the nature of the modern 24-7 media. True enough. 
Um, as you look at how this has played out, uh, who would you point to in terms of nations who have uh, seemed to have uh, dealt with this COVID-19 uh, crisis especially well? And uh, I mean, in a sense, who, who do you think are the sterling examples of, of leadership in, during, during this difficult time? Uh, Germany has done extremely well so far in their reopening their economy for reasons that have to do with culture and society. Uh, likewise, South Korea, another very well-organized country in terms, again, in terms of actual facts and what we know about what's going on. And I think the United States of America, given the size and diversity of our country, isn't doing too badly. But Germany, South Korea, Taiwan is a superstar. Um, some, something um, my students and I have been dis discussing as part of our political economy seminar at some length, um, some real lessons for, for us. The symbolism of Taiwan up against China, very much part of greater China historically, why they've done so well while China has, with this terrible um, uh, problem originated, has done a very poor job of handling it. Uh, how so? What? How so in terms of China? First of all, they tried to, the nature of dictatorship uh, they tried to cover it up. They denied reality. There's increasing hard evidence from what I see in the serious media that this um, uh, COVID-19 started um, much earlier in China in terms of available evidence. They denied it was happening. Yeah. Um, the, the nature of dictatorship, we were talking about the Third Reich earlier. An Achilles heel is the fact that it's very easy to deny reality until it's too late. Uh, first of all, they're responsible for this. Uh, they've played politics and tried to minimize not only their own responsibility, but the seriousness of it. You can't really do that in a free country. Note, note the countries I've mentioned, Germany, South Korea, Taiwan today are very free countries. Hmm. Uh, one thing, of course, that's interesting is uh, in a country, as you've already pointed out, like the United States, that... Uh, is in many respects individualistic, uh, probably one that, that while also a, a certainly a source of strength when it comes to things like innovation and so on, uh, can maybe also be an issue in, when it comes to things like how we act, what we do for the common good or the collective good, that sometimes an individualistic spirit or perspective uh, can get in the way of doing something that is for the betterment of the overall community. Do you see any potential rub there between those? Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish. No, that's it. The uh, well, that's where leadership comes in in uh, in any environment, large or small, uh, free or controlled, and the nature of leadership makes a crucial difference. Um, there's a general consensus. I'm old enough to remember barely when FDR was a very controversial president, especially among grandparents and, and others, a major break with tradition. But a good part of his leadership success, both during the Depression and during the terrible war we were discussing, is the ability to communicate confidence and uh, discourage panic and um, have a clear plan, a clear and detailed plan. Both politicians, including Roosevelt, it can be an ever-changing plan. 
but uh, do attack the problems and try to minimize the fear through sustained, serious, um, thoughtful action. That's my best answer, but it's why democratic leadership with a small D is so difficult mm. and uh, why we tend to associate our great, greatest leaders with great crises, including the most serious crisis, the Civil War, which remains important to emphasize um, today, remains far more serious and far more destructive than anything Americans face now. So uh, I hope that's a clear answer. I don't know. You're, ni- you're nice to invite me on and provide the opportunity to to speculate, which is what I'm doing now, but that, you know, it's leadership and then being specific in how you attack uh, the problems you face. So, we, all, uh, we all know that. If you stop and think about it, we all know that. And that's why it's important to stop and think at a time like this. Right. Uh, you've already touched on the fact that at least to some extent, or at least in some respects, uh, you would give uh, the United States decently high marks in terms of of how we have uh, tried to come to grips uh, with this uh, COVID-19 crisis. Uh, maybe you could just uh, talk a little further about uh, the specifics of that and, and, and maybe specifically uh, the ways in which uh, President Trump and his administration uh, have, have conducted themselves through the, through the course of this. We're trying to um, yeah, start. We have tremendous resources, including a public health infrastructure, and a very, very sophisticated uh, research um, care structure nationwide, not as well organized as some countries. Uh, We don't have a national public health system, obviously, but we have tremendous resources. And uh, the other side of that is is China, which uh, constantly trumpets that they're catching up with the United States. But in reality, they're a long way away and the deficiencies of their public health system are quite obvious. I'm not praising the president. I wish he would stop talking um, on a daily basis about this. I, I do think the vice president has done a good job of not only presenting himself, but as the president said, uh, Vice President Pence is in charge of the, the handling of the details of a national response, and I think he's acquitted himself well from what I can tell. Um, it's not something that our leaders ignore. And there are countries where leaders literally ignore problems. And until fairly recent years, a lot of the world was um, uh, populated by leaders in developing and poor countries that um, simply would ignore these problems. They had no means to address them. Hmm. Let's, uh, let's take our... our uh our, our uh, lens uh, elsewhere. Let's talk, first of all, uh, about uh, North and South Korea. I think you've briefly touched on the fact that South Korea gets uh, very, very high marks for the way they've handled uh, the COVID-19 situation. I suppose it's much less clear uh, how the North Koreans are, are, uh, are handling it. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, the biggest story out of North Korea is... Uh, whether or not their leader is alive or deathly ill or, uh, or has just vanished from the scene for, for other reasons. But uh, as someone who follows events on the Korean pen- Peninsula uh, more closely than most of us, I suspect you're following this, this uh, latter matter with, uh, with great interest. 
Yes, and uh, it's I actually don't know any more than you do, or not much more um, at best. It's a very the most closed regime in the world, the last remaining um, old time twentieth century totalitarian dictatorship. Apparently, Kim Jong Un, the great leader, is is ill. Um, whether he's alive or dead, or how sick he might be, is just unknown. A large team of Chinese of doctors from China has gone to North Korea. And uh, not he, but I did see a, a reliable news story, not, not the person himself, but uh, uh, his entourage and um, uh, transportation were at a seaside resort. So maybe he's dead and they're pretending he's still alive. Uh, maybe he's not sick at all. Who knows? But nobody is praising North Korea for a good response to this public health problem. In fact, I believe they deny it exists. We're South Korea, uh, bordering China in a challenged part of the world by definition. Again, they get high marks for the way they've handled this. I, I honestly don't know what's going on in North Korea, but don't think of it as a country and a government the way we do. Think of it as a feudal regime, mm. a very wealthy, powerful family, um, starting with um, Stalinist leader, right? Uh, right at the end of World War II. It's been a single family. Um, you know, think of a pre-modern environment. It's not the kind of world in which you and I live and in which we're communicating now. Right. Uh, the army is very powerful. They have a very strong military tradition throughout Korea. They're an extraordinarily effective um, warrior culture. I can testify to that uh, directly. They... Um, uh, there is, I believe, a coterie of um, army officers who really keep the place going. Well, we'll be watching uh, watching North Korea, uh, in a sense, with bated breath. <laughs> yeah, if and when Kim Jong-un appears. <laughs> yeah, see if anything happens that we can see it, make us reliable. Right. Um, there has been, uh, of course, a lot of conversation about uh, what is going on in Russia right now. And... Uh, I know among among the things that Russia is is struggling with is not only COVID nineteen, of course, to some extent, but also the fact that uh, this would be an example of an economy like like others uh, that are being hit very hard by the drastic downturn in in oil prices. Um, first of all, can we tie this downturn in oil prices very directly to the COVID nineteen crisis? Is, is that what has created this, or was there some sort of slide in prices already in place? And and what does what do those oil prices mean for an economy like Russia's and for Mr. Putin? Uh, Russia is heavily dependent on. You're actually asking several questions. A slide in oil prices was visible before this public health problem hit, um, just as serious analysts were predicting a recession this year before. Uh, this public health um, pandemic arose. Uh, Russia depends heavily on petroleum and other natural resources. They're, they're not an advanced industrial society, even though Putin likes to pretend that they are. Uh, he gets a lot of credit, deservedly, for saving Russia when it was in a free fall around the turn of the century, and he took over. And he's been power. He's been in power ever since because he was able to spur foreign investment and organize the economy in productive directions. He's obviously extremely talented. And Russia began to draw foreign investment 
but they are oil dependent, which means they, um, like other oil producing nature, nations except us, they, like the Saudis and others who are heavily dependent on petroleum, have really been hurt um, by the slide in prices. There was a brief but intense price war between the Saudis and uh, the regime in Moscow that um, uh, has created instability in the system. They gave up on that because the oversupply is so great and also it would have hurt them very badly if it had continued. My understanding is that the current extraordinarily low prices is as a direct result of the fact that we're not driving like we normally do. Um, Warren Buffett, <clears throat> who's a lot more um, insightful and a lot more influential than I am or want to be, uh, he says very explicitly over the long term that it's very good for everyone, including the production of our economy, if we have really low oil prices. In the short term, it's a problem and it's un, un destabilizing, but he thinks it's great over the long term. Interesting. He hasn't been saying much lately, but he has been saying that, which mm. is worth um, worth keeping in mind. Right. I think you uh, you were you've also uh, I think written about how um, because of the way Russia operates under Mr. Putin's leadership, that there are ways in which. Uh, foreign investment in Russia, which they desperately need, has been in in many respects sort of mm -hmm. inadvertently discouraged. Uh, can you explain more about that? Yeah, thank you very much for bringing that up. Um, I forgot to mention that earlier. Thank thank you. With emphasis, uh, he's, it's an increasingly autocratic system. Russia does not have any long established tradition of representative government in contrast to Western Europe and parts of Eastern Europe. A brief flicker after the first Russian Revolution was quashed by the Bolsheviks and the communists who very ruthlessly seized power. Um, over time, under Putin, there was an experiment with democracy in the 90s and early in the century, but Putin has, in, has imposed an increasingly heavy hand and autocratic control on the system and that has been discouraging foreign investment. I'm sure there's a lot going in that's unreported. It's in many ways a mafia society. Uh, we were talking about the 1930s earlier. Think of Russia as in some ways a kind of um, gangster-ridden environment that used to characterize industrial nations. Unfortunately, we've gone beyond that, but I'm sure thanks to corruption, wheeling and dealing, and Putin's genius, not only for, for survival, but for um, maintaining power, that there's a fair amount going on in the economy. Nonetheless, they are slowly but surely uh, losing foreign investment. And that's something that has to be addressed over time. Mm -hmm. so thank you very much for bringing that up. Uh, again, we tend to see our opponents as 10 feet tall, but in terms of actual capital, especially in private hands. The, the data concerning the net assets of the United States, private as well as governmental, is almost astonishing. Um, and that's compared to our own history as well as other countries. Every 20 years since 1940, our GDP, um, government statistics on the production, of our economy, mind you, measured in terms of consumption, but it does mean something. We've doubled every 20 years since 1940, and we're about double where we were at the turn of the century. Even though the scale is vast and common sense would 
lead you to think that this will slow down. It hasn't. So that's our great ace in the hole as a country, as a society, our economy is such a powerhouse. Ever since I was a kid, we've been going broke. When people look at the mess in Washington and lament what's happening, and politicians like Ronald Reagan fairly recently successfully build careers on that. But in point of fact, we don't go broke because we're so productive. Hmm. We're speaking with Dr. Art Sear, Clausen Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage College, uh, director of the Clausen Center. Uh, he is uh, paying his monthly visit to the morning show, and we're glad to have him here. Uh, Professor Sear, uh, one of the things we should talk about is uh, the political situation in uh, Great Britain. And uh, maybe one of the first things we should mention is that uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson is finally out of the hospital. It sounds like for a while he was actually in intensive care and a very yeah. sick man due to the COVID-19 yeah. uh, virus. Uh, but he is uh, he is back at work. But, uh, but what you wrote uh, more recently uh, in a column was about a leadership turnover in Britain's Labour Party. And, uh, and a, a gentleman whose name I did not know at all, Sir Keir Starner, is... Uh, now the head of the Labour Party, and it sounds like he is uh, succeeding somebody uh, who uh, did not succeed very well as Labour Party uh, chair. Tell us uh, the recent history of the Labour Party, what, what their difficulties have been, and the promise of this new leader. Uh, good question, and not an easy question. The, um, uh, the Labour Party historically is committed to socialism, which means nationalization of industry in traditional Marxist terms, very different from American culture. Uh, we tend to think of ourselves as just like the Brits, actually we're not. Um, the Labour Party, after a long period in the wilderness during Margaret Thatcher's uh, long successful tenure as prime minister, uh, moved back to the middle of the road with Tony Blair. And New Labor was a labor party that was not committed to nationalization of industry, minimized old time class warfare um, themes, uh, emphasized technology, uh, accepted the market economy. And Tony Blair, like Margaret Thatcher and associates uh, were in power for a long period of time, from 1997 uh, for about a decade. Um, the Labour Party then lurched to the left again and uh, spent time in the wilderness. And now Keir Starmer, who is uh, more of a throwback to the Blair kind of Labour Party, has taken over. The Conservatives have a very large majority in the British House of Commons. But that could change fairly quickly, um, given the fact that it's no longer a two-party system, Conservatives and Labour, but also the Scottish National Party which now dominates in Scotland, has a large number of seats. Uh, the third party, the Liberal Democrats, have seats. Uh, both parties, both the big parties, have been split by Brexit, uh, leaving the European Union. And so it's a very turbulent time. But uh, Keir Starmer, he's Sir Keir, which means he has establishment upper-class credentials. He's a Queen's Counsel, which means he's a really big-time, highly respected uh, attorney and counselor in our terms. Uh, he is much more likely to take the Labour Party to victory than the old-time socialists who were in charge. 
And if I, 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 I hope that's clear. It's not a two-party system. It's a lot more in very subtle, not obvious ways. It's a lot different from our system. Right. And if I remember correctly from your column, and maybe you said that in your description just now, but uh, I think you said that uh, Sir Starner is uh, a relatively moderate figure, at no. least as recent, oh, yes. compared to recent Labour Party leaders. And uh, and and I, would you are you saying that that would suggest, or that's the reason to think that maybe he can take the Labour Party to a, a better place than it's been? Uh, yeah, that's the clear, short answer uh, version of what I was just saying. You're quite right. Summed it up very well. Jeremy Corbyn, the longtime disastrous leader of the Labour Party, he's kind of a throwback. He's sort of like an aging hippie or a certain kind of college professor. He rides a bicycle. He's very conscious of the environment. Uh, certain things seem to pass him by. There was a very ugly uh, refrain of anti-Semitism has plagued the left and other part and the right and other parts of um, different countries over time. It seemed to be emerging in the Labour Party. Whether it was overdone or not, I don't know, but it really hurt them in terms of the electorate nowadays, in terms of the electorate at large. And there was a lot of media criticism. So Corbyn seemed to be out of his depth, but that's not the case so far with Starmer. And Tony Blair, showing how ruthless and changing the tides of politics can be. Tony Blair, who's now a pariah, uh, was for years, literally, just extraordinarily successful and influential in British politics and policy. Again, the kind of new labor Blair approach to running the Labour Party and getting elected that the Labour Party seems to be moving back to. Fortunes can change drastically in a place like Britain. Well, they can change any place, but especially in a place where the political system is complicated and turbulent as it is in Britain, especially these days. It's also, well, yes, you're quite right. Churchill said famously, all political careers end in failure, which he, by which he meant, I think, don't stay too long and eventually you're going to lose, as he did. Right. As his party did, not Winston, who remained very popular, but the conservatives were literally thrown out of office in a general election that, ended, that took place before the end of the Second World War. It is a unitary system. The more I learn about the US Constitution and the foundations of our great country, the more impressed I am by the founders. It's hard to get things done in Washington, and that's the way the system is designed. Hmm. In Britain, all power resides in Parliament. They only recently got a separate Supreme, all power resides in the monarch, um, traditionally, but in reality, it's Parliament and the lower house they decided to have a referendum on Europe, which um, just barely passed the referendum to leave the European Union, barely passed, surprising David Cameron, the prime minister. He was out, his, uh, he decided he was out after a general election, which he thought they'd win, and in fact they lost. And then his successor um, miscalculated the miscalculations of life when Parliament is dominant can lead to extraordinary changes. Hmm. Britain has gone through this terrible ordeal of Brexit, leaving the European Union, based on a referendum, which just narrowly passed in terms of leaving the EU. And look at all the grief that's also fascinating, but in a free country, a very large country, it's a very good system. Hmm. Let's uh, 
Let's take our last two minutes or so to give you a chance to talk about NATO and the fact that NATO uh, is uh, not only a, uh, an organization of, of nations that has been around for, for decades, but uh, an organization that is growing. Uh, tell us uh, how NATO is continuing to grow and yeah. the significant role that it's playing right now. NATO is shorthand for the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It was set up uh, in 1949 as the Cold War descended on Europe. The Soviet Union disintegrated in the early 1990s, but NATO is still around. Um, it's part of the status quo. It doesn't make a lot of news. Um, it has been slowly expanding eastward. My own view is that um, a lot of what happened under the Republicans, especially the George, a lot of what happened during the George W. Bush administration was misguided in terms of um, a rather belligerent, hostile stance toward Russia. Vice President Cheney especially was inclined to poke the bear in the eye. Um, it led to Russia invading um, Georgia uh, re-annexing Crimea, and otherwise in a very risky way. I think we provoked provoke them uh, quite unnecessarily toward hostilities. I think the Democrats during the Clinton era were more sensible and more sophisticated in terms of minimizing that kind of provocation. Uh, we no longer provoke Russia rhetorically, but NATO continues to expand geographically um, Montenegro, a small state that nobody pays much attention to, joined the alliance in June 2017, and North Macedonia, part of the uncertain uh, boundary situation in Eastern Europe, unlike Western Europe, they just joined this last June, um, last March, last March 2020. Um, Montenegro was June of 2017, North Macedonia was the end of March 2020. Uh, it's been handled in a non-provocative way. These governments do want to join NATO. The last point that's germane to my mind, uh, there was a century of peace in Europe after the Allies, led by Britain, finally got rid of Napoleon the second time at Waterloo um, from the early 1800s to the early 1900s. Peace reigned, supervised by something called the Concert of Europe, the Congress of Europe and the Concert of Europe, informal collaboration among the great powers orchestrated again by the British. Uh, NATO performs kind of that function. So my view is it's, it's still got a lot of worthwhile uh, missions. Fortunately, a lot of them are not military. A tremendous amount of aid uh, within Europe, but also to and from the United States, medical supplies of all kinds have been trans have been NATO operation transported in air NATO designated aircraft from member nations. Uh, NATO engages in a lot of humanitarian and uh, non-war activities that make it still worthwhile. Hmm. Thanks, thanks for asking. It's a, it's a really important subject that we don't pay much attention to. The well, one of the things. Go ahead. 
One of the things we try to do is pay attention to the right things on this program, and you uh, certainly help us do that. Professor Art Sear from uh, Carthage College, director of the Clawson Center there, uh, it's always great to speak with you. I appreciate uh, uh, your perspective and uh, look forward to our conversation in May, whether it's uh, virtual or in person. And I thank you again for being a part of today's morning show. Well, thank you so much, Greg. You're always gracious, and I really appreciate it. The hour goes by fast. It does.